Hello, it's Daniel Bryant here. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you about QCon London 2024, our flagship conference that takes place in the heart of London next April 8th to 10th. Learn about senior practitioners' experiences and explore their points of view on emerging trends and best practices across topics like software architectures, generative AI, platform engineering, observability, and the secure software supply chain. Discover what your peers have learned, explore the techniques they are using, and learn about the pitfalls to avoid. I'll be there hosting the platform engineering track. Learn more at qconlondon.com. I hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. My name is Daniel Bryant and for this episode, all of the co-hosts of the InfoQ podcast have got together to reflect on 2023 and look ahead to the coming year. We plan to cover a range of topics across software delivery from culture to cloud, from languages to LLMs. Let's do a quick round of introductions. And Thomas, I'm looking in your direction. I'll start with you, please. Hi, I'm Thomas Betts. In addition to being one of the hosts of the podcast, I'm the lead editor for architecture and design at InfoQ. And this year, I got to actually be a speaker at QCon for the first time. I've been a track host before and done some of the behind the scenes work. So that was probably my highlight of the year is getting out to London and getting up on stage and meeting some of the other speakers in that capacity. Over to Shane. G'day, folks. I'm Shane Hasty. I'm host of the Engineering Culture Podcast. I'm the lead editor for Culture and Methods on InfoQ. And I would say QCon London was also one of my highlights for this year. It was just a great event, track hosted, one of the people tracks, and just seeing some of the interesting stuff that's happening in the people and culture space. And over to Srini. Thanks, Shane. Hello, everyone. I am Srini Penchikala. I am the lead editor for data engineering, AI, and ML at InfoQ. I also co-host a podcast in the same space, data and AI and ML. And I'm also serving as the programming committee member for the second year in a row for QCon London. So yeah, definitely it has become one of my favorite QCon events. So looking forward to very much to that. And also looking forward to discussing the emerging trends in the various technologies in this podcast. Thank you. Hi, I'm Wes Rice. I am one of the co-chairs here on the InfoQ podcast. I haven't done a whole bunch this year, so I'm excited to actually get back in front of the mic. I had the privilege of chairing QCon San Francisco this year, also hosted the Architecture You've Always Wondered About track, had some amazing talks there I'm sure we'll talk a bit about. My day job, I work for ThoughtWorks, I'm a technical principal, where I work on enterprise modernization cloud. Fantastic. Yeah, Daniel Bryant here, long-time developer and architect, moved more into the, dare I say, the world of go-to-market and DevRel over the last few years, but still very much keeping up to date with the technology. Much like yourselves, my highlights of the years have rolled around QCons, for sure. Loved QCon London. I think I got to meet all of you, like I say, and, and that's always fantastic meeting up with fellow InfoQ folks. But I also really enjoyed QCon New York, met up with a bunch of folks there, and I hosted the platform engineering track at QCon SF, and that was a highlight for me. Yet it kind of actually leads nicely on to the first topic I wanted to discuss, because the platform engineering track really turned into a people and leadership track right we all know the tech is easy right the people are hard so i'd love to start and sort of have a look at what are folks seeing in regards to teams leadership you know i know we've talked about teams apologies before yeah i'll jump in first off that track at kickon san francisco that you mentioned that you ran i really enjoyed that track because it did focus on the people side of platform engineering I consider myself a cloud native engineer. When I introduced myself, I talk about being a cloud native engineer. Over the last couple of years, every single client that I've worked with, it seems that the problem that we're really solving is more of around the people problem. And as you rightfully mentioned just a second ago there with Team Topologies, which just to make sure everyone's level set, Team Topologies is a book that was written by Matthew Skelton and Manuel Paz, both also InfoQ editors who happened to kind of talk about the first idea of this book, if you read the intro, at QCon London many years back. But regardless, Team Topologies is a book about organizing engineering teams for fast flow, kind of remove friction, remove handoffs to be able to help you deliver software faster. So back to your question, Daniel, where you talked about platform engineering and you talked about the importance of people on it. I really enjoyed that track at QCon San Francisco because it really, truly did focus on the people challenges that are inside building effective platform teams. And I really think that shows that we're not just talking about the needs of having a platform team, but how to build platform teams more effectively. So I found that a really super interesting track. What was your reasoning for putting together the track? What made you lean that way? 
So it actually came from a discussion with Justin Cormack, who's the CTO of Docker now, and he was championing the track. He's on the Qcon SFPC. And he was saying that a lot of focus at the moment on platform engineering is very much on the technology. And I love technology, right? I know you do, Wes, as well. The containers, the cloud technologies, infrastructure as code, all that good stuff. But he was saying that in his work, and I've seen this in my work as well, that the hardest thing often is the vision, the strategy, and the people, the management, the leadership, right? So he was like, can we explore this topic in more depth? I thought it was a fantastic idea. I reached out to a few folks in the CNCF space, explore the topic a bit more in a bit more depth. Super lucky to chat to Hazel Weekly, David Stenglin, Yao Yu, Shruti Patel, and of course, Ben Hartstone from Honeycomb as well. And those folks did an amazing job on the track. I was humbled, right? And I basically, you know, stood there and introduced them and they just rocked it as in fantastic coverage from all angles, from like Hazel talking about the big picture leadership challenges. David sort of went into some case studies and then Yao did a use case of Twitter. But what came through all the time was the need for strong leadership, for a clear vision, things like empathy for users, which sounds like a no-brainer, right? You're building a platform for users, for developers. You need to empathize with them. But definitely in my consulting work, even 10 or more years ago, I would see platforms being built, you know, someone recreating Amazon, but not thinking about the internal users. So they build this internal Amazon within their own data centers and be all happy, but then no one would use it because they never actually asked the developers, what do you want? How do you want to interact with that? So thoroughly enjoyed that QCon SF track. It was genuinely a privilege to be able to put the ideas together and orchestrate the folks there. But again, the actual speakers do all the fantastic work. I encourage folks to check out the write-ups on InfoQ, check out the videos on QCon when they come out as well. Shane, as our resident cultural methods expert on InfoQ and in general, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Are you seeing a change of leadership? Is there you know, different strategy, different vision, more product thinking? What's the big questions? I'd love to yeah, get your take on it, please. Is it a generational shift is one of the questions that sort of sits at the back of my head in terms of what's happening in the leadership space in particular. You know, we're seeing the boomers resigning and moving out of the workforce. We're seeing a demand for purpose. We're seeing a demand for ethics, for values that actually make sense from the people who we're looking to employ. And as a result of that, is organizational leadership changing? I honestly think, yes, it is. Is it as fast as it could be? Maybe not. But there is a fundamental turning the oil tanker, I think, going on in leadership that is definitely bringing to the fore the social responsibility, the sustainability, the values, purpose, developer experience touches it. Just treating people like people. And at the other side, we've had the massive layoffs. And anecdotally, we're hearing that those have resulted in lots more startups that are doing quite well. So that was a hugely disruptive period. That seems to have settled now. But certainly, I would say the first six, maybe even nine months of 2023 were characterized by that disruption. The hype, or is it hype around what is programmer productivity? The McKinsey article that blew up and everybody objected. Just what do we mean by programmer productivity? How do we measure programmer productivity? Should we measure programmer productivity? Uh, And then are we actually getting some value out of the AI tools in the developer space? Certainly I can say for myself, yeah, I've started using them and I'm finding value. The anecdotal stories, again, there's not a lot of hard data yet, but the anecdotal stories are that AI makes good programmers great. It doesn't make bad programmers good. And I think one of the things that scares me or worries me, and I see this not just in programming, but in all of our professions, the good architects get great because they've got the tools at their fingertips. Good analysts get better because they've got the tools at their fingertips. One of the things that I think we run the risk of losing out on is how do we build those base competencies upon which a good architect can then use and leverage the AI tools, upon which a good programmer can then use Copilot to really help them get faster. 
But there's that learning that needs to happen right at the beginning as we build early career folks. Are we leaving them in a hole? That's my concern. So, yeah, a lot going on there. <laughs> and there's a few things that tied sort of together, Shane, as well, in terms of we talked, I think, last year on the podcast, all of us around hybrid working, right? And how does not being in the office impact exactly what you're saying? I mean, Thomas, you and your teams, are you using Copilot? Are you using things like that? And, and to Shane's point, how do you find like the junior folks coming on board? Do you boot camp them first and then give them AI tools or what's going on, I guess? Yeah, we took the somewhat cautious approach. We had a pilot of Copilot and a few people get to use it because we're trying to figure out how does this fit into our corporate standards. There's concerns about is my data, like Copilot's taking my code and sending it up and generating a response. Where is my code going and is it leaking out there? Just one of those general concerns people have about these large language models. What are they built on? Is it going to get used? So for that reason, we're taking it cautiously, but the results are pretty promising and we're figuring out like, when does it make sense? You know, there's a cost associated with it, but if you look at the productivity gains, it's like, well, we pay for your IDE licenses every year. This is just one more part of that. And it does get to, how do you teach somebody to be good at it? I think there's a couple of really good use cases for Copilot and tools like this, like generating unit tests, helping you understand code, throwing a junior developer at, here's our code base, there's 10,000 lines and they just, eyes glaze over, they don't know what it means. And they might not be comfortable asking every person every day, like, what does this do? What does this do? But I can now just highlight it and say, hey, Copilot, what does that do? And it explains it. As long as everyone understands that it's mostly correct, it doesn't have the same institutional knowledge of the developer who's been around for 20 years and knows how every bit of the system works. But from what does the code do? It can help you understand that and get that junior person a little bit of an extra step up to being able to understand. And then how do I feel confident about modifying this? Can I do this? How would I interject this code? And even the experienced people, I've got 20 plus years of development. I've fallen in the trap of, oh, just add this method. I'm like, great. And it's like, that doesn't exist. And it's like, yep, I made that up. Like the hallucinations get us all. So there's still time to learn how does all this work. But I still go back to the days before the internet, when you had to go to the library and look stuff up in a card catalog. And now we have Google. Like Google makes me a much better researcher because I have everything at my fingertips. I don't have to have all that knowledge in my brain. I don't have to have read 10,000 books. Should I not have Google and search engines? No, it's another tool that you get to use to be better at your job. Oh, I love it, Thomas. Love it. And Srini, I know we're going to go into the sort of foundations and some of the tech behind this later on with yourself. You did a fantastic trend report for us earlier last year. But Srini, is your team using things like Copilot? And do you personally you know, think there's value in it? And then what are you thinking of doing with that kind of tech over the coming year? Yeah, I agree with Shane and Thomas. You know, these are tools that will make programmers better programmers, right? So, but they're not going to solve your problems for you, right? You need to know what problems you need to solve. So I kind of look at this as another form of reuse. You know, like, for example, let's say I need to connect to a Kafka broker, whether in Java programming language or Python, you know, I can use a library that's available or write something by myself. Or now I can ask ChatGPT or Copilot, hey, you know, give me the code snippet, you know, on how to connect to Python. So how to connect to Kafka using from Python or Java programming. So it's kind of another form of reuse, you know, if we use it properly and get better at being productive programmers, right? So yeah, definitely I kind of see this being used. Daniel Copilot, especially ChatGPT is not there yet in terms of mass adoption in the companies, but Copilot is already there because of the Microsoft presence right there. So yeah, definitely I think these tools are going to help us become more productive, you know, in the areas that, you know, they are good candidates to help. You know, Daniel, when people ask me about Gen AI and large language models, the way I try to go back to it is how my car, it helps me drive these days. And that really, in my opinion, is what these tools are doing for us. It's helping developers. It's helping developers drive our code. It's augmenting what we're doing. I think there's a, quite a bit of hype out there about what's happening, but at the base of it, the core of what we do as software developers is we think about problems and we solve them. Gen AI is not replacing how we think about problems. We still need to understand and be able to solve these problems. What it's doing, it's really just helping us work at a higher level of abstraction. It's augmenting. I think Thomas just mentioned that. This is really what Gen AI is really about, in my opinion. Now, that's not to say there's not some amazing use cases that are out there that can be done, but it's a higher level abstraction. Copilot's for developers, but I think the large language models in ChatGPT are useful for other people in the software development landscape. 
I like seeing program managers and product managers that are trying to figure out how do I write better requirements? How do I understand what I'm trying to say? Our UX designers are going out and saying, how do I do discovery? What are the questions I should ask? What are some possible design options? And it's the rubber duck, right? Like I like having your programmer to ask a question to. Everybody can benefit from having that assistant. And especially going back to we're all hybrid, we're remote. I can't just spin my chair around and ask the guy next to me or the woman over there or find someone on Slack because I'm working at two in the morning. But it doesn't sleep. Like I can ask ChatGPT anytime to help me out with something. It's always available. And if you find those good use cases, don't replace my job, but augment it. And it can augment everybody's job in some different way. And I think that makes software development you know, accelerate a little bit better. The rubber duck is a great example. Chat GPT truly is. It's a great rubber duck. I've certainly seen a lot of that happening in the product management space, in the UX, in that design space. There are the dedicated tools now, that chat GPT being the truly generalist tool. One I've been using quite a bit is perplexity because I find that one of the great things for me in that as a researcher is it gives you its sources. It's telling you where it found this, and you can then make a value judgment about, you know, is this a credible source or not? Then you've not got that truly black box. Fantastic. One thing that's touching on something you said, Thomas, as well, is I was actually reading a bunch of newsletters, like catching up on everyone's predictions for the years. And Ed Sim is a bold start VC. said that AI moves beyond GitHub Copilot and coding to testing ops and AI ops slash again kind of thing, right? I know we all like hate the AI ops, but something you said there, Shane, made me think of that too, in terms of like referencing, right? As we move into the more operational space, you've got to be right pretty much all the time, right? <laughs> and you've also got to say, the reason why I think these things are going wrong in production, or the reason why I think you should look here is because of duh, 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 right? So I do think like taking that sort of the next step for a lot of operational burdens being eased by AI, we are going to need to get better to explaining the actions and actually referencing why the system recommends taking the following actions, right? You know, Daniel, I think it's more than even just nice to have. It's a legal requirement. If you think about GDPR in the EU, the general data protection regulations that came out a few years ago, it talks specifically about machine learning models. And one of the requirements of it is explainability. So when we're using LLMs, not just setting aside for a second, where the data comes from and how it collects it. There's a whole range of areas around that, but the explainability of things that you add is a legal requirement that GDPR requires systems to be able to have. So switching gears a little bit, Wes, when you and I last caught up in KubeCon SF and KubeCon Chicago as well, you mentioned that you've been doing a lot more work in the cloud modernization space. So what are you seeing in this space and what challenges are you running into? Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Quite a bit of the work that I've done over the last year has been in the space of enterprise cloud modernization work. And, you know, I'll tell you what's been kind of interesting. It's like, you know, we go to QCons, we get kind of into an echo chamber, and we kind of think just cloud's a foregone conclusion that everybody's there. But finding is over the last couple of years that there's quite a few shops out there that are still adopting and migrating and moving into a cloud. I guess the first thing in the space to point out is that when we talk about cloud, it's not really a destination. Cloud is more of a mindset. It's more of a way of thinking. So if you look at a CNCF ecosystem, it really has nothing to do with whether a particular set of software is running on a certain cloud service provider. It has nothing to do with that, right? It has to do with the mindset of how we build software. I think Joe Beta, one of the creators of Kubernetes, when he defined the cloud operating model, he defined it as self-service, elastic, and as API-driven. Those were the characteristics of a cloud. So when we really talk about cloud migration and modernization, we should first focus that it's not a destination, it's not a location, it's really a way of thinking. And a way of thinking means we're talking about making things ephemeral, we're talking about things making very elastic, leveraging kind of global scale, but it doesn't necessarily mean it involves with a particular location from a CSP. One of the things that I found really successful as we're talking about cloud modernization this year is kind of revisiting the seven R's that I think AWS was originally came out with. And that's, if you remember, it was like retire, replatform, refactor, rearchitect. I think those are fantastic, but, but a lot of what 
I've been talking about this year is a little bit going beyond just re-architect and actually talking about reimagining and resetting. And what I mean by that is it's not just enough to re-architect an application. Sometimes you have to really reimagine. If you're going from a database that runs in your data center to a global scale database, something like AWS Aurora, Azure's Cosmos DB, or, or even Cloudflare. Cloudflare is D1. They have an edge-based relational database now that's designed for Cloudflare workers. When you move to something designed like that, it changes how you think about databases. And I think it requires a bit more of a reimagining of your system. How you do DR, how you think about things like blue-green, all those change when you start talking about a global scale database. And it's not just there. It has to do with how you incorporate things like serverless and all the myriad of other cloud functions. But again, it's a trap just to think about cloud as a location, because while I just mentioned serverless, and it certainly came originated from cloud service providers, you don't have to have a cloud itself to be able to operate in the cloud native way. So it's critical to be able to make sure we understand that cloud is a way of thinking, not a destination. So reimagining is one that I think is really important when you start considering cloud migrations and modernization work today. And then the last one kind of harkens back to your first question there at the very beginning, where you were asking about team topologies. And a lot of times when you're making that move into a more cloud native based ecosystem, there's a bit of a cultural reshift that has to happen. And that cultural reset is, I think, super important. And if you don't do that reset, then you continue the practices that maybe weren't present when you weren't using cloud native in a cloud system. And I think that causes a lot of anti-patterns to exist. So two things that I really think in this space today is reimagining and resetting when it comes to thinking about how you do cloud modernizations. Yeah, big plus one to everything you said there, Wes. Um, I'm definitely seeing this kind of shift, if you like, with the KubeCons in particular. So I've been going to KubeCon pretty much since version zero. I was involved in organizing the London one back in the day. And shout out to Joseph Jackson, the crew that put that one together. But the evolution has been very much from the, you know, really innovative tech focused type folks like myself. We're all in that kind of space to some degree, but more towards the late adopters now. And the late adopters, late majority, they have a different set of problems. They just want to get stuff done. They're not perhaps so interested in the late tech. You know, I'm super bullish on things like eBPF and WASM. If you're into the sort of cloud space, those technologies are super exciting. You know, Envoy under the hood, I've done a lot of work in that space as well. But I think now people are really coming with actual business problems, large IT estates. Really, they're just saying, how do I modernize incrementally? You kind of want to avoid the big bang, right? As Martin Fowler says, if you do a big bang migration, typically all you get is a big bang and that's never a good look, right? And folks are also looking at things like cost these days, right? Doing more with less, and that's a big factor. And kind of related to this, Thomas, I wanted to get your thoughts. Something that's very popular on InvoQ this year is the whole monolith to microservices to nanoservices slash function as a service. Pick your name of choice, right? In fact, one of our most popular articles on InfoQ last year was by Rafael Gankars. Got a name check, Rafael, done a bunch of great work of late. But it was Prime Video switched from serverless to EC2 and ECS to save cost. And they talked about how they moved from a microservices architecture to the monolith. Now, obviously, a lot of hidden context behind that title. Rafael did a great job of diving deep. I know, you know, many other folks have discussed this online. Adrian Cockcroft, hat tip to him. He put a very sensible spin on some of the other spin coming out of this discussion. But yeah, I'd love to know where you stand on this stuff, Thomas. What What's best? Microservices monolith? Obviously, it depends, right? Yeah, this isn't a new thing. Like I remember back in QCon 2020, one of my top articles of the year was our journey to microservices and back again. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, segment, wasn't it? Segment, yeah. And you hear these stories of, oh, we're adopting microservices because it'll solve all our problems. Or we're building a new system and we will start with microservices. And I always have in my head the Martin Fowler article, you must be this tall to ride microservices. If you're not willing to take on this level of operational overhead and burden and managing a distributed system, why would you add that to the complexity? Like software is hard enough as it is. So what's the right size? And we don't like monoliths because they're big balls of mud. Well, that doesn't mean a monolith has to be the big ball of mud. If you have it well-structured and organized, and that goes to just good software hygiene, right? If you structure your code well so that it's maintainable, so that it's readable, so that the software is sustainable, that's going to make it easier to modify that over time. 
microservices were, I want this little bit that I can understand all of my code and what this one service does. Well, that's great. Do I need to have a distributed system to be able to get that benefit? No. And so people are now, I think, finding the right size services and looking at what's the right thing. The story that you pointed to that Rafal wrote was, we switched from functions as a service to you know, monoliths and it saved us money. Like, well, it never said this was going to save you money, but maybe functions was the right decision at the time. Maybe you were able to get up to speed really quickly because you wrote just what you needed. And getting a product in market is always better than having a product on the shelf that you're still working on for another two years. Like you're not making any money, so you can't save any money. And then being able to evolve that over time. And I think that's the thing that we struggle sometimes as architects is when can I say that it's the right decision to drastically change a big part of my architecture? I'm going to switch from functions back to a monolith. I'm going to go to EC2 and looking at all those factors and all those viewpoints, what is it actually costing us to maintain the system from development headaches to the cost of ownership, all those things come into play and looking at that and saying, does this architecture decision we made two years ago still make sense? And if it does stay with it, but things change over time. And so the criteria that you made your decision on a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, was the right decision based on the information you had, but it might not be the right decision now. And is it worth it to make that switch? So look at your situation. The architect's answer is always, it depends. And so ChatGPT should answer, it depends. That's what it is. That's the Thomas GPT. So. You bring up a lot of good points, Thomas, there. You know, I actually published a couple of articles on cloud native architecture adoption. And then you know, this is exactly what I talk about in that article, right? Microservices, monoliths, serverless architectures, you know, they're all patterns. And they all have areas you know, where they add value. And they also have their own limitations, like any design pattern. So if you don't use it in the right place, you're only going to see the downside of that solution, right? So, And also, like you said, architecture is contextual as well as temporal, right? What worked five years ago may not be the right solution now. I mean, that's the evolution of architecture, right? So, so again, I think all of these are good solutions for the right problems. You know, you just have to figure out you know, what works for you, right? So. I think we've all seen it, right? It's been the age-old thing with software. Premature optimization is the root of all evil. Premature microservices is kind of the root of modern-day architecture evil. But monoliths are fine. They solve a set of problems. Like the example that I always use when we talk about, like Thomas, you referenced Martin Fowler's article a while ago. The thing that I always talk about is like, think about just a simple stack trace. When you're in a monolith and you have an error, you have a stack trace. You can track down, you know, you get an error, throw an exception. You can walk the stack trace to see kind of where it came from. You can up troubleshoot the application. Now take that same problem and put it into a microservice environment. Now all of a sudden you have a distributed stack trace that you have to be able to pull together. If you don't have the right observability in place to be able to assemble that distributed stack trace, how do you get back to the basics of a stack trace that you had for software? So you must have a certain level of observability just to be able to successfully operate in the system. If you're not there, building microservices is a huge risk. Microservices solve a problem. You have to make sure you're solving the right problem. The answer is rarely one of the extremes. And I think people hear it's going to be microservices or it's going to be a monolith. I'm like, No, there's a spectrum. Find what works for you and where are you on that spectrum? It's all about trade-offs. Like you said, every decision comes with pros and cons. Find the trade-offs, make the right decision, and evaluate it again over time. I think I'm quoting you actually, Thomas, but I remember I think a conversation with some folks recently around if we can plug in the Git history and our architecture decision records into something like ChatGPT, to Shane's point about referencing and all this kind of stuff like that could be fascinating, right? As in, hey, we made this choice three months ago. The technology has changed, you know. And there's something we're going to cover later on, Srini, retrieval, augmented generation. Look at what's currently going on in the landscape. Should we move to microservices? Should we move to the monolith? I think that is going to be a fascinating area of architect tooling, potentially, right? I did want to shift gears a little bit and move on to sustainability. And I wanted to frame this bit. I'm sure we've all got some really important opinions in this space, but I wanted to frame it around a recent popular piece, again by Raphael. I'm going to shout out Raphael again, with the Frugal Architect. AWS promotes cost awareness. This is Werner Vogel's, Dr. Werner Vogel's keynote at the AWS reInvent conference. I'm sure many of us working in the cloud space have been thinking about this for some time. I did a fascinating podcast actually with some folks, uh, Roy Rafon, talking about FinOps, and that's become definitely a thing with the FinOps Foundation behind the scenes now. But but I'd 
love to get folks' thoughts on, perhaps shame, I'll start with you in terms of sustainability. Like, How important do you think that is in the bigger picture? And then we'll move on to Thomas. I know you've got some opinions on the cloud stuff and Serena too. As long as it's not greenwashing and veneer, it really matters. Our industry generates as much carbon as the airline industry. We could do better. We should do better. Taking a measured approach, a frugal approach, one is is good for our organizations. I think it's going to be better for our customers and should be better for the planet. And not just in the architecture, fundamentally having that frugal approach. But I'm thinking of one of my recent podcasts where Jason Friesen, Frugal Innovation Saving Lives, building low-impact technology for emergency response that has to cope in environments where all of the infrastructure is degraded. After an earthquake, after a fire, how do we ensure that what that infrastructure that we're using enables us to actually do that saving life stuff? Now, would that have a lower carbon impact? Yes. Would it have a lower cost to run? Probably. Will the UI be as intuitive? Probably not. All about trade-offs. <laughs> Thomas, I don't get any thoughts. I know you're busy in the cloud space a lot, yeah? Yeah, this calls back to UConn London last year. There was a sustainability track. Great presentations. Holly Cummins had one. It was like, how to shut down cloud zombies. And it was like, light switch offs was her mantra. Just turn it off. There's a lot of resources that are just left running because it was really easy to spin them up and we don't turn them off. And like, is it going to solve all the problems? No, but it's the same thing. Like the taxi is not allowed to sit idling outside the hotel all day long because it's just sitting there. So you have no idle rules. Same thing for our software. Like we should be able to turn stuff off. Same thing on that track. Adrian Cockcroft gave a good overview of cloud provider sustainability. And what I appreciate, it was a dense talk, but it went into some of the complex problems we're trying to solve. Because like Shane, you mentioned, is it going to reduce carbon? Yeah. Is it going to save costs? Yeah. We tend to have those two as our only way of one measuring the other. I spent less money on AWS, so I guess I was more green. Getting actual data of how much carbon was used is difficult and we're working on it and the different levels of where you measure it. So your company uses this, but your suppliers have to be considered or you're not running your own data center, but you're in the cloud. So you're still accounting for the carbon footprint of your software. And is that software running in Virginia where everything's on coal or is it running somewhere they have more green energy? So where you distribute your software does make a difference. I think we talked about this last year, that it's a trend we want to see. And some people are talking about it, but it's not pushed up to the forefront. Like, I don't see, here's your carbon footprint on your monthly bill and pushing that down to the teams. We've talked about how we get the costs associated back to the development team. So one development team knows, hey, you spent $2,000 last month, but the average team is only spending 500 bucks. What are you doing? Getting those kind of reports are getting easier. And I know we had platform engineering and platforms on the stack somewhere to talk about, Daniel. I think the next level, and this isn't going to happen tomorrow, but I think we're going to see those little green metrics of how green is your software. And I want to believe that somehow AI is going to help because it's a complex problem. And sometimes if you can throw the computer at it, it can figure out the answer that it'd be hard for us to come at. But we'll see what the next year or two evolves for those things. Thomas, along those same lines, you know, maybe we can track this consumption as a debt type of thing, like, you know, how we have technical debt and then track it for application or the software component and see which one is causing more or less green you know, computing impact, right? So it'd be good to do that. I don't know if we want to talk about it now, Serini, but it's often the training of the models gets pulled up as not very green, right? In terms of like inference might be pretty good. You can maybe do that on the edge or whatever. But I think that's something to bear in mind as we get more and more reliant and you know, we're training chat GPT-5 or whatever, right? It's crazy money and crazy resources, right? And crazy carbon in that way. Right, yeah. It's only going to get worse, right, in that sense. <laughs> Yeah, switching gears perhaps a little bit. Thomas, on our pre-show notes, you mentioned architecture is increasingly about data pipelines, ML models, and systems that depend on them. And as I read that, I was like, yep, 100%. I was reading some other things that were saying AI evolves from narrow tasks like writing text to enterprise workflow and automation. I'm from the days of like business process modeling, all that kind of stuff, right? And I'm desperate to see that automated. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because I've wasted far too much of my life with the UML models and, and BPM models and things as much as it's super important. But I did like what you were coming there. So I'd love to dive into that a bit more, double click on what you're meaning with that architecture increasingly moving towards data. Yeah, I think we've talked about this last year. I looked at the notes and it was like architecture plus data. 
And I think now it's not just the data pipelines are being designed in, but the ML models and the whole workflow, like you may have had your data analytics sitting off to the side, like here's our operational system and everything goes into a data warehouse and we analyze the data and sitting over there. All that stuff and even some of the ML generation is being brought in as first-class citizen, part of our product, part of our system we have to have, not a nice little add-on. And that means all of the abilities that architects care about, like the sustainability, the redundancy, fault tolerance, I now need those on my data pipelines. It's not a nice to have. And if it turns off tonight, it'll be fine. We'll fix it. It'll run tomorrow. No, we switch from batch processing to stream processing. And all that stuff needs to be up and running or our system as a whole isn't operational. So yeah, those design decisions are now coming into play for all the data. And I think what shows us the most in the last six months, I feel like half of the news articles we've had come up for InfoQ Srini and I have had to discuss which queue does this fit under? Is this architecture and design with a slice of ML and AI, or is it ML with an architecture flavor? And you look at, well, are they talking about architecture design decisions? How did we factor these things in? Or is it more about here are the models and how we're using them? And sometimes those articles and the news stories really overlap both. And I think that's just going to keep happening. Those things are going to be more and more you know, you got your chocolate and my peanut butter and you can't separate them. <laughs> nice. Great analogy. Serena, I know you did a lot of very interesting work around the AI and ML trend report for InfoQ. We all do trend reports. I'd say check out the cultural methods, check out architecture and design. We have Java, we have cloud as well. But Serena, I wanted to definitely double click on all the good work you did around the AI ML trend report. And plus one to what Thomas is saying as well around like there's increasingly across all of our topics in InfoQ, there's this bleed of cloud and data engineering and AI and, and even the culture and methods in terms of like, is it safe to do that? What should we do with that? It's blending into this. So, you know, gradually it's all coming together. But Srini, anyway, I'd love to dive into what your thoughts were around the AI ML trend report. Were there some key things that jumped out for you? Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Yeah, definitely. As Thomas mentioned, data is the foundation for anything, right? Including AI, you know, hype that's going on. Definitely, I would recommend our viewers and listeners to check out the AI ML trends podcast from last year. We posted it in September of last year kind of get more details on what's happening. But to kind of summarize, right, you know, 2023 was the year of ChatGPT, of course, right? And the generative AI. We heard about so many different use cases where people were using ChatGPT. To me, I think those are, most of those use cases are still, you know, what I call hello world use cases. When you work for a real company, you cannot put all your data into the cloud and let ChatGPT or OpenAI train on that, right? So you still have to have some kind of checks and balances. So that's where the RAG, right, the retrieval, augmentation solution will come to help where you can augment the training models with your own private information to get more domain-specific predictions for your company, right? So that's going to be a big thing, I guess, for this year, 2024, along with other ChatGPT, like you said, Fidato and, you know, other innovations that's going to happen. Again, along with AI and generative AI, the same old topics, you know, the related topics will definitely get more attention, like, you know, the responsible AI has been a big deal. So now responsible generative AI will be also a big deal, right? How can we make these gen AI solutions more ethical and less biased and fewer hallucinations, right? All the good stuff. So, so definitely, I think that's going to be another big thing in this space. Also, the security is going to be a big topic as well. How can we use these applications with the correct security and privacy in place? So all of those are going to kind of come back in a more kind of specific way that's specific to LLMs, right? So... And the other one is LLM ops. I know you mentioned about AI ops and ML ops. Daniel, so LLM ops will be another big topic that will be needed to operate these large language models in the enterprise setting. How can we take these models into production? How can we scale them up? And how can we use them in an energy efficient manner, right? Like we talked about. How can we make LLMs more green, right? So all of those will be kind of getting more attention. On the data side, if I can quickly talk about that. Again, Thomas already mentioned, you know, data streaming is still a big component on the data side, you know, stream processing, streaming data. Uh, that is still the core part of the modern data architecture stack. So that will continue to grow and provide more real-time solutions and data additions for the companies. So the innovations in LLMs and Gen AI are actually kind of leading to some new innovative trends and innovative products like vector databases. So for the LLMs to work, you know, you need to present the data in a specific format called vector embeddings. And there are some new dedicated databases that are used to manage this data. So like Pinecone and, you know, there are a couple of Milvus, the other one, you know. So they are getting a lot of attention in this space. So it will be interesting to see how they evolve. And then the other one is the cloud. You know, cloud is always the foundation for any IT solution, right? So I'm kind of seeing the multi-cloud usage as a 
continuing trend i guess you know not so much new but continuing to become more popular you know where if you have multiple different types of use cases for example data analytics use case versus a use case that involves data but you know it's not analytics use case so you can actually use different cloud vendors so cloud vendor x for analytics use cases cloud vendor y for you know the other use cases right so you don't have to depend on one provider for everything and you can take advantage of the best solution from each of these cloud vendors you know so so the multi cloud usage is another trend that we are seeing and i think that should be all you know so basically again the data will play a prominent role whether it's in architecture that's what i'm taking away from this and shane i'd love to get your thoughts something you mentioned there when you really like trip my wire there was the responsible ai ethical ai and shane i know you've got sort of the lens of the product mindset right and are folks actually thinking about this should they be thinking about this how are they thinking about this when building products <laughs> responsible and ethical i like to think that yes we are sometimes i think reality proves me wrong <laughs> InfoQ has been really one of the organizations that has held up the, asked us to hold ourselves to account as an industry in terms of ethical behavior. One of the points that we've got in there is crypto. Well, yeah, <laughs> what has happened in that space? Just because we can, doesn't mean we should. And when we do, how do we make sure that we're doing these things, quote unquote, right? Big, big questions that I don't know that we're touching on the answers yet. I like to think that we're moving as an industry in a more ethical direction slowly, but it kind of goes with that leadership thing as well. This is an oil tanker. We're turning. It's not a fleet of speedboats. Yeah, I think when you said that that was generational changes, that's why it's slow. And it's sometimes you just have to wait for the next generation to come in and they've just grown up with these are the expectations. For better or for worse, my son's off to college now. And so he's always had a phone, right? Like I didn't have a phone in my pocket when I was that age. And that generation is going to be graduating and they're going to be like, yeah, you always have all the apps and either you have the mindset of we trust everybody or we trust nobody. But that's just the world they live in. They grew up with Google. The generation that's leadership right now that's leaving is still the generation that had none of this when they started their career. And Yes, good software companies, we've seen people evolve, but sometimes you just need to wait for that generational shift to be like, and now we're going to you know, get across. I'm looking at things like I always have you know, annual requirements for training on security standards and things like that. And there's always some ethics component because I tend to work in industries that have ethical requirements. But software ethics, that itself isn't discussed. Like we don't talk about you need to take your software ethics training this year. Like we need to take the ethics training, like don't embezzle money. Okay, don't do that. But how do I write software that isn't biased? That's not a thing that everyone just accepts as a norm. I want to believe that we're getting there. But like Shane says, right now, there's just too much data that proves me wrong. Thomas, that should be one of the elites going forward, you know, like responsibility or ethicality, whatever, you know, so because we do need to write solutions that are responsible. I think the bottom line is we have to remain vigilant, right? If you remember before COVID, there was quite a bit of work that ACM was doing around the software code of ethics. And it was really about, as we talked about LMs and things like that just a little while ago, as we work at higher and higher levels of abstraction, we're able to do more and more with the amazing resources that are available to us today. How do we make sure that we're respecting privacy, we're honoring confidentiality? How do we make sure that we're doing no harm? Like, how do we make sure that we're building systems, as you said, Thomas, that just because we can, should we? How are we making sure that we're doing things safely and correctly? And I think that's an important part of dealing with software ethics. And you're right, Thomas, we haven't embraced this as part of what we do every day, but we really have to continue to remain diligent and make sure we're doing the right thing. I do want to make one call back to, Shreen was talking about a bunch of stuff and the retrieval augmented generation. And I think even when Shane was talking about citing your sources with, was it perplexity? One of the podcasts I did just a couple months ago with Pamela Fox from Microsoft talking about, if you wanted to get started with this, there are some sample apps on Azure, but Microsoft has, you know, here's how to get started using a large language model for your enterprise data. I think that's definitely going to be a big thing we're starting to see more of. Either people are going to build it themselves or it'll be off-the-shelf product. I think, was it Microsoft 365? You can now pay to have all of your OneDrive and SharePoint documents searchable. What does that mean? And then what she pointed out is they're using ChatGPT both to help 
do the search, but also to translate so that it asks a better question because people aren't good at asking it. And that when you type in, here's what I'm looking for, you've already restricted your data set to the things that I've put in my R enterprise data store, but it's figuring out, you ask this, I know how to ask the question in computer speak. And so they're using the LLM as the input to ask a better question of the search engine and then formulate it as the output back into here's a human readable answer and here are my sources because it knew which PDFs it got them from. That also got into things like, because I was talking like the idiot that I am, she explained vector databases and what is REG and all those things. So that podcast had a lot of, if you're just new to this and you're hearing these terms for the first time, some good like beginner level, what do these things mean? And so if you want to dive into it this year, that's probably a good place to start. Fantastic. I've taken a bunch of notes as we're going along for the show notes, and I'll be sure to link a bunch of these podcasts we've all mentioned. So excellent stuff. I just one thing we haven't touched on, which I think is quite important based on what we've heard last year, is around OSS licensing. We've seen, you know, over the last several years, there are say, several changes in OSS licensing, but I do think it's you know, the whole ethics thing, Shane, you've touched on. But just, you know, as an architect, I've got to think about this stuff now, right? I mean, many of us have for many years, but now it's really top of mind. I'd uh, love to get your thoughts, any of you, on where this OSS licensing change? And is it the end of open source? Is it a new dawn? Get your thoughts on that would be much appreciated. Giving the doom and gloom answer always seems to get, you know, clicks on your post of like, oh, OSS is dead would be a great headline, but it's not dead. I still go to the XKCD cartoon of we're all built on this one little piece of software from like 1992. And that's funny, but true in some ways. And the software bill of materials is a concept that we're trying to see. And I think this started from concerns about vulnerability, that zero-day hack went into some repo that you use, some package that you use, and everybody uses it, and everybody automatically gets the latest version, and then that little change ripples across. There's been a few different stories of this over the years of how you think that you've got this nice, stable set of dependencies, but you don't actually know what all those dependencies are. And... When we were in a closed source environment, you wrote all your code inside your company. Like, yeah, you owned all of that. That's not the world we live in now. So if you ask me what is every single line of code that is in the software that I am running, I couldn't tell you. And I don't think anybody could. If you're pulling in five NPN packages or seven NuGet packages, they have a trail of dependencies that just falls out. And all of a sudden, you've got a lot of things. I think you were also talking about the sustainability. The people who are writing the open source software, how do they make a living? Is this just a side project? But if your software gets successful, at what point do you start saying, I have to turn this into a business and quit my day job? And how do I make money supporting this? We're looking at some of the big companies paying to say, hey, we'll give you money or we'll give you people to maintain your open source projects. There's a few different funding models, but it'd be nice if we saw more companies that had some way to make it easy to just say, we're going to throw this developer who writes critical software because it's in all of our system. You're getting it for free. You're a multi-million dollar company. Why are you using free stuff just because it's an easy NPM dependency? So how can you make it easier for us to support those? And I don't know if we have a good funding model set up. It's not the app store, click a little 99 cent thing, buy another NuGet package. Yeah, Thomas, I agree. Open source is not dead and I agree with you. And also free and open source are not synonyms for me. Open source is more than free, right? So <laughs> it just doesn't cost anything, no? but it's more than free. So also the other thing is like, I was going to highlight this earlier, you know, open source, the reason why I say it's not dead is we have a session in QCon London coming up in April on open source frameworks for LLM applications. You know, So it should be a very interesting topic. So yeah, open source is everywhere. Even LLM space is getting it. So it should be very interesting to see how that evolves. So yeah, definitely, you know, I use, I am a big open source fan myself. I use a lot of frameworks. I have contributed to a couple of them in the past. You know, so, so I definitely have a lot of respect for that. Now, I don't think any of us would say that open source is dead, but I do think that there are challenges. When companies are building software, then other companies build on top of that software, but then add their own software to it that are not open source, that don't contribute upstream, and then even begins to compete with the original software then people that built the original open source software begin to question whether that makes sense. So these are challenges that have to be addressed. And I think it goes back to that software ethics question we talked about before. Like what is ethical, what is right, and how do we approach these type of problems? 
Thanks, everyone. Just to put a pin in that for the listeners, there's a series of great articles. If you want to know more about this on InfoQ, got to give a hat tip to Renato Losio. Recently wrote a news article about Sentry introducing non-open source functional source licenses. I remember there was a bit of confusion when Sentry reached out to us. Initially, they called the license open source, and then they later backtracked. I'm not picking on Sentry because we've had this on many different vendors over the last couple of years, right? And everyone's got to make money. So I do get it. So it can be a complicated situation. But Renato in that article linked a bunch of interesting other sources. I know I often look to the OSS Capital folks, uh, like JJ I've already mentioned. Heather Mirka is really good. She's got fantastic books and articles. If you want to go find more of her stuff, you can learn a lot more about how these recent changes to some of the OSS and non-OSS licenses may impact your role as an architect. And I would end by saying, if folks want a practical jumping off point to this, like knowing what's actually in your software, as in, in the thing you're building, is really valuable. It's a shameless plug, like as Thomas did. I chatted with Tracy Miranda recently on the podcast, and she went deep dived into S bombs and Salsa, one of the frameworks around this. That's a great jumping off point because I learned a bunch of stuff. There's different S bomb formats, and they have strengths and weaknesses. But she was basically saying, just get started, right? And it's a great thing to do. You've got to take the plunge. So I thoroughly encourage folks to check out Tracy's podcast. I'll link to that as with all the things in the show notes too. But as we're coming to the end, I'd love to get a prediction for next year. We definitely, like, as part of next year's podcast, we'd have to look back and you know, check how, how good we were in our predictions, right? I think we've done that sort of as we've been going through the discussion today already. But yeah, I'd love to go through and I'll just do the top of screen order again. But Thomas, to put you on the spot, what is your prediction for 2024? What's the big tech, the big sort of approach, the big change in leadership, anything you want? When we recorded this a year ago, we recorded like a week or two after ChatGPT came out. Oh, yes. I think last year it was like, are the robots going to take my job? <laughs> I'm still here. We're all still employed. That didn't fall out. I do think, though, we're getting past that initial hype cycle of these things are so amazing. Yes, the ChatGPT adoption of like a million users in one day or whatever the crazy stat was, that's a hype cycle. It has to calm down. You know, the new models are getting better. They're evolving. People are learning what they're actually good for. I think we're going to start seeing them show up in all the ways we've already discussed. They're going to show up in ways to make everybody's job a little better. And we'll start seeing those specialized tools. This is for product managers. This is for, you know, Copilot and whatever the tools for developers. This is for UX. And this is for enterprise search. And we'll start seeing that just becoming expected. Like people talk about ChatGPT and large language models but we don't talk about how search engines work. We just use them. And at some point we're going to get to, yeah, there's just this AI underneath the covers. And I think when we stop talking about AI, it's ready for the next thing of what AI actually means. And I'd like us to stop saying AI in every conversation because we don't have it yet. We're not going to have general artificial intelligence in the next year. I'll predict that. <laughs> so we're not reaching the singularity. But yeah, I think that's my vague prediction for next year is we're going to have some tool that is not so revolutionary for everybody, but it starts becoming fast the hype cycle to actual products that were like, that's a good thing. I'll start using it. I'll double down on what Thomas is saying there in terms of the tools that leverage and getting beyond the hallucinations as well with these tools that are going to be more focused on specific aspects like product management, UX design, so forth. And there's already some of them out there. These are the things that are going to genuinely accelerate the people who are doing this well. I'm still concerned for that gap of the newbie, and I hope that we're going to see ways to bring people up to a level where they can really leverage the tools. That, I think, for me, is one of the bigger risks because it risks creating almost a two-tier system where you've got these experienced folks who are really good and new folks who just can't get in. And I'm going to say I see the organization culture stuff steadily improving. We're getting better at being ethical. We're getting better at being sustainable. We're getting better at thinking about not just developer experience, employee experience. So steady, slow shift to quote unquote better for the way we work with and deal with people in our industry is my. Is it a prediction or is it a hope? Yeah, for me, I don't want to really focus on predictions. I don't think any of my predictions on these end-of-the-year podcasts have been particularly accurate. But I do want to focus on maybe some things that I'm interested in, something I want to really look at in the new year. 
If you remember back, I can't remember if it was this past year or the year before, but one of the QCons, I remember chatting with Marcel Van Luisen. He created a programming language called Q, and while it's not a general purpose programming language, it is a programming language that's really focused on data validation, data templating, configuration, things like that. And I'm hearing a lot of information in the Kubernetes space that even though there's not direct support for Q and Kubernetes, it's being used quite a bit because of its roots in Go. Stefan Pradden of Weaveworks actually created a project recently I saw called Timoni that I want to take a look at that really is supposed to remove, I think it's called a package manager for Kubernetes. It's powered by Q, inspired by Helm. But it's really, the idea of it is to allow you to, to stop mingling Go templates with YAML like Helm does, be able to stop layering in YAML like you do with Customize. So for this upcoming year, I'm really interested in looking at Q and some of the products that are coming out because of it, like this Timoni product. Yeah, I agree with both Thomas and Shane. Next year, if we are talking too much about AI, that means we are not there yet. So <laughs> I think AI will become the behind the scenes, transparent, the very fabric of software development that it will start to make everything better, whether it's like you guys said, you know, product management or I'm hearing even software like Workday is using AI now, right? So so AI is all over everywhere, right? So I think it will start to kind of become more invisible and start to add value without being so evident, right? And that's how it should be, right? So actually my daughter, she just started going to college. She started with chemical engineering as a major, but she recently switched to computer science. So she was asking me like, what kind of jobs will be there in the future? <laughs> I told her there will be two types of people in the future, AI people, you know, who know and how to use AI. And there will be AI and T people, A and T people, you know, so that <laughs> who don't know what to do, you know, so. And also, I just want to make one quick comment on the architecture, right? The only architecture that will last the times is the resilient architecture. So make sure your architecture is resilient in terms of scalability or easy to switch to different design patterns. One more thing, Daniel, you know, kind of more like a shameless plug, I guess. So I recommend our audience to check out the data engineering AIML friends report from last year. It was published in September last year. And also, I hosted a webinar, InfoQ live webinar on chat GPT and LLMs, you know, what's next in the large language models. So it was a great discussion as well. And obviously we have a lot of topics like RAG. We talked about that, VectorDBs a little bit. So if anybody is kind of who's new to them, we have excellent speakers, you know, talking about these topics at the QCon London in April. So if anybody who's new to this, you know, definitely check out the conference website. It's our podcast, really. We could do as many shameless plugs as we like, right? We'll all definitely be there, or many of us will be there for QCon London. I also got to shout out, we're doing a new InfoQ Dev Summit in Boston in June, I believe. So if folks are liking what they're hearing and want to know more, I'm hoping to tag along to that as well. But we're trying different formats. We've got the webinars, we've got the podcasts. They're all great fun. I think shameless plugs are more than allowed, Srini. So I'll definitely be doing a few, I'm sure, along the way. Just for my predictions, I'm going to say, I was going to do like the AI one as well. I think you've all said it perfectly as well. Something we didn't touch on, and I think sort of outside the AI space in architecture, is a lot more composability I'm seeing in the products. Dapper, I know you do a fantastic podcast with the Dapper folks, Thomas. I really enjoy that podcast. Lucky enough, I met the folks from Diagrid who are sort of behind a lot of the Dapper work. I met them at KubeCon. Myself and Wes actually had a great chat with Mark and Yaron and the team. And I'm just really excited about the composability. A lot of the stuff that I sort of built back in my software engineering days when the cloud was just becoming a thing, I now see this being popularized and correctly built with a community behind it, which is fantastic, right? I mean, every where I used to go as a consultant, we build the same things, queue connectors, cron jobs in the cloud, all that kind of stuff, right? So I am loving the fact that the Dapper community is coming together to do that. So that kind of composability in that space, super interesting. And I'm also seeing it a whole bunch in the CICD space as well. I was privileged to talk to Solomon Hikes, one of the original Docker co-founders, and also the Dagger co-founder. And he talked about how they're using code to build pipelines using open source Dagger framework. People can listen to the podcast. It genuinely blew my mind. Hopefully you can hear me going along on that podcast going, oh, I, I totally get it. Composability, right? This is great. So that for me, like, I think outside of the AI space, I'm hoping to see more and more of that system initiative, same kind of deal with CI pipelines around modeling, different abstractions. It's all complementary to the way I think AI is going, but the abstractions will allow us as humans to understand it. And hopefully the AI systems to, you know, explain it in an understandable way rather than just all be spaghetti code or be spaghetti pipelines. If we've got these good abstractions like DACA, like sorry, Dapper, Dagger, and System Initiative and many other sort of 
frameworks in this space, I'm hoping me as an architect, I can just understand and compose these things in my mind. So outside of AI, that's what I'm excited about next year. I'm so glad you brought those up because I somehow missed, it was in my notes earlier and we forgot to bring it up. So thank you for bringing that. And yes, those two podcasts you did about CICD pipelines, I'm like, I don't like working with them. And I learned so much. Like that is a totally new way of thinking about it. And I love hearing that on our podcast or any other podcast when you're like, I didn't think about this problem that way. Those are the innovative ideas that are really going to be changing things in the next few years. 100%, Thomas, 100%. We're all getting excited about AI with good reason, but I do remind that things are ticking along. To your point, Shane, you know, steering the tanker ship, right? Whether it's culture and methods, whether it's like composable architectures. Srini, you mentioned about data hygiene. Like we're all getting excited about AI, must have included, 100%, right? But that tanker ship, it's going to take a while to turn, right? And long as we're all, you know, thinking about these things from a good sort of viewpoint, thinking about ethics, sustainability, I think all these things weigh into making the best decisions we can, given the context we've got at the current time, right? So fantastic. Thank you once again, all of you for joining me on this amazing podcast. It's always fun to catch up. Usually we do it before the Christmas holidays. Now we're doing it in the new year. So I look forward to podcast, but I really appreciate everyone's time. Hopefully we'll catch all the listeners at the various Info Q and QCon events coming up soon. Thank you.